Uh, thank you so much for taking the time to join us for this extremely important and timely discussion uh, on the U.S. immigration policymaker and chief, the long history of executive authority over immigration. And before I introduce our distinguished speakers today, let me just do some housekeeping chores here. If you have any problems accessing the webinar, please contact us at events at migrationpolicy.org. If you want to reach us by phone, feel free to do that. It's 202-266-1929. Unfortunately, we are not meeting in person, so there will be no voice questions and answers. We wish we could have done that, but to ask any question of the panelists, please use the Q&A chat function on the right screen throughout this webinar. Or write to events at migrationpolicy.org. If you want to tweet, tweet at, migration, tweet at migration policy or hashtag MPI discuss. And today's uh, event will, the webinar will be available on the MPI website at migrationpolicy.org events. Uh, we are here, obviously, as all of you know by now, to, dis to discuss the book that uh, Adam Cox and Christina Rodriguez have just launched. Uh, you will see a link to that uh, book on the screen. There are also related MPI sources, including a recent report on cataloging the U.S. immigration policy and the Trump administration uh, that my colleagues uh, Sarah Pierce and Jessica Poulter have done. That's also linked, and other MPI resources on the Trump administration's use of executive action. Uh, so having done my discharge, my obligation for home of these housekeeping, let me first turn to just save time introducing all our speakers. Uh, we will be first uh, uh, started off by Adam Cox and Christina Rodriguez. They are the co-authors of this new book called President and Immigration Law. Uh, Adam is a professor of law at at NYU Law School, actually chair professor of law at NYU Law School. I skip naming the chairs of both these scholars because they take too long to pronounce, and I always get scared that I will somewhat, you know, mistakenly change them. Uh, so they're just uh, chair professors of law. And before Adam came to NYU, he taught at the University of Chicago. And before that, he uh, clerked for Judge Reinhardt of the U.S. Political field in the Ninth Circuit, and after that, worked for the ACLU and for a corporate law firm doing immigration law. Uh, Christina is also a chair professor at Yale Law School. She has actually been the enviable position of teaching at almost all top law schools of our, of our country. Uh, but in addition to her distinguished academic career, she was also the Deputy Assistant Attorney General in the Office of the Legal Counsel in the Department of Justice during the Obama administration. She clerked for Justice O'Connor in the US Supreme Court, but most importantly for all of us, she is uh, an incoming board member at MPI, also a non-resident fellow at MPI, a, a twin distinction that has not been shared by anyone uh, so far. So, Grateful for that, Christine, and a long collaborator on various MPI projects. Uh, Sarah Pierce is not a non-resident, but she's actually a resident person, though in the world of Zoom, one never knows what is resident and what is non-resident. Uh, she is our policy analyst uh, uh, in the U.S. immigration program, 
but has become really the resident expert at MPI on cataloging all of President Trump's actions, in reviewing them, analyzing them, and presenting it to audiences, especially through extensive use of, uh, of, of the media. Uh, she wrote uh, a very authoritative, if I could say quickly, a catalog of the President Trump's actions on immigration with our colleague Jessica Bolton. Uh, before she came to MPI, Sarah was a practicing lawyer in, um, in Chicago and therefore knows the immigration, uh, so, uh, immigration policy and law from that point of view. Uh, our final speaker will be Elena Goldstein. She's the Deputy Bureau Chief for the Civil Rights Bureau of the U.S. Attorney General's Office. She is the principal litigator in that office on, all, on a variety of immigration uh, actions uh, and, and in challenging especially the actions of the, of the administration. Uh, before she came to the Attorney General's Office, she worked at the Office of the Solicitor General and the U.S. Department of Labor working with workplace rights and protections. And prior to that, she clerked both for Judge Rakoff and the U.S. District Court in the Southern District and for Judge Chief Judge Katzman of the United States Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit. We work for one of them. It's a huge distinction to work for both of them. That is almost unique. So let me now turn quickly to the matter at hand. Uh, which is sort of, uh, we decide to do this thing, obviously, because we are coming close to an election. There's never a better time to think about the presidency and immigration than we are as close to the election as we are now. But I think to provide an entry point to why this is important for us at MPI to do this event on this book, uh, obviously, we know that uh, President Trump's presidency has been defined by immigration. He used it as, as sort of the flag around which he rose to the presidency. And he has kept it, his promise and actually executed almost every promise on immigration that he made. And that obviously by itself makes immigration and presidency a salient subject of discussion. But I think let's all, all remember that even forgetting about the old history on immigration, if we just focus in the last 20 years, the 21st century immigration, it has remained a controversial contested topic for a very long time. And when you think about what those topics are, they're not about what Congress did on immigration. They're almost all about what the president or the executive branch has done on immigration. Just after 9-11, the actions of the government are in response to 9-11. Then coming into the into the 2005s to 2012s, the heavy formidable machinery on immigration that was built, which led to record number of people being removed. Then coming to the Trump presidency, the use of the travel ban, uh, the use of the end of the discretion in immigration enforcement, this ending the asylum system as we know it, the fight between localities and states and the federal government over the, over who has the jurisdiction and immigration. These are all highly contested topics for the last 20 years. And even when you look on the pro-immigration side of it, DACA is the only gain that immigrants have made in the last 20 years. And that precisely did not come from Congress, it came from the executive. So the other branch of the government, Congress, has essentially been silent. 
it has been on the sidelines of immigration. And to the extent it has legislated anything, it's only always in the context of appropriation. And using the power of the purse, it has, in my mind, basically provided enormous resources and enabled the executive to do what it has been able to do on the issue of immigration. So instead of being active in a, in a, in a meaningful way on immigration, it has been on the sidelines and been an enabler of most of the executive actions of all the administrations in the last 20 years. And then the last branch of the government, which is, this, which is the courts. We all have seen during the Trump administration, courts have been extremely active. They've been injunctions issued all across the country by federal district courts. But when they have come up to the Supreme Court for final review, Supreme Court has basically said only a slap on the wrist of many of the president's actions. That the message has been that you have the authority to do a number of these, you just did not do them right. So the question for us is how did we come to this? What are the authors of this book, President of Immigration Law, has said the sort of the imperial immigration presidency. What is the genesis of this, of this imperial presidency? Is precisely, I think, the agenda of the book that Adam and Christina decided to take on. So for that, those of us who have been wondering about how this huge, extensive, elaborate, extraordinary power of the presidency came when you can't, in my opinion, find a better way of understanding the anatomy of that phenomenon and understanding how, at what peril does it come, what can be done to check it, and what may lead, lie ahead uh, in, in the future as we approach the election. So let me first, therefore, turn to the two authors of this book, Adam Cox and Christian Rodriguez. I think just by the, by the toss of coin of their, of the alphabetical orders of name, uh, Adam has decided to go first. So Adam, why don't you proceed? Tell us essentially at some level to me, uh, sort of what, how did this all come about? Uh, and sort of what does it mean in the, in the, in today's context? But, if you don't mind, also tell us how did you decide to come to this project? How did you decide to write this book? And how did you decide to collaborate on this? And how did this successful collaboration came about, come about? Especially when I know both of you are struggling also having two young kids. So uh, go ahead and let me know. Thank you so much for that generous introduction, Luz. And, um, Hi, and I'm sure, Christina, we both want to thank MPI for hosting this event. We're really excited to get to talk about um, these issues and to explore the ideas in the book with, with you all. Um, as, as you said in your introduction, you know, presidential immigration law is everywhere today. You know, you noted the Trump travel ban, the administration's rescission of DACA, which was President Obama's signature initiative to protect dreamers from deportation. The dramatic changes in recent years that have resulted in the near shutdown of the uh, system for screening the asylum seekers along the southern border. And in almost all of those episodes in recent years, whether it was in the Trump administration or the Obama administration, uh, the policies of presidents exerting control over immigration policy have, um, have prompted fierce opposition and criticism from all sides with claims that the president has usurped Congress's authority to regulate our system of immigration. Now, the recent events 
might lead us to think that the phenomenon that we see today is a recent one. Right? So this is a story that's much to do about the Trump administration, or maybe a little bit more broadly speaking, as you suggested, dating back a couple of administrations, that it's a story about the, the modern uh, political polarization in this country and what it's done to Congress as an institution. But Christina and I think that those two diagnoses are both mistaken. We think the roots of the current phenomena are much deeper in American history. And we think like having a proper diagnosis, an accurate diagnosis of how we got to where we are today is gonna to be crucial to finding a path forward. So let me, I'll talk for just a couple of minutes about how we got here or how Christina and I think that we've got to the present moment. And then I'll let Christina talk a little bit about what that reality means both today on the ground for immigration policymaking and going forward for all people who hope to reform the system. Okay, so, so what's the real story? The real story, a story we think has been largely untold, is that presidents since America's earliest days have played a really important role in making immigration policy. You know, if you think back to the 19th century, in fact, immigration policy was basically made by presidents negotiating treaties. But perhaps most importantly, in our view, over the course of the 20th century, our system of immigration regulation in America was transformed in a way that cemented the role of the president as essentially our immigration policymaker in chief. And as we see it, there are really three interlocking developments that took place over the course of the 20th century that put the president in the driver's seat. The first change, which began early in the 20th century and kind of accelerated as the century wore on, was the rise of deportation as a, as a tool of immigration regulation and a turn towards a more probationary system of migration. In the earliest days, our first immigration laws contained few deportation provisions, and the, the deportation provisions that existed were often significantly limited by the, the, with statutes of limitations and other restrictions on whom could be deported. But many of those limits fell away as the 20th century developed, and we, we turned to a system that put nearly all immigrants on a probationary status in the United States. So throughout the duration of their stay, whether they're temporary migrants or lawful permanent residents, green card holders, their right to reside in the United States is still held, you know, subject to cer certain conditions. And the government reserves the right to deport folks for a vast array of conduct. So the, the probationary nature of migration was a significant development in the 20th century that contributed to this power. The second change, the second change was not really a change in the formal structure of law, but more a change in the bureaucratic realities of our immigration enforcement system. In the early 20th century, there was almost no immigration enforcement bureaucracy. Little immigration enforcement took place away from ports of entry along the, the seacoast. Um, our land borders were largely unenforced. The border patrol didn't even exist until 1924. And even after we got the rise of federal agencies to regulate immigration like the INS, those agencies were generally seen as under-resourced, ineffectual, maybe feckless. Contrast that with the reality today, where the Department of Homeland Security, which houses the immigration enforcement functions, has a budget that dwarfs 
the budgets of all other federal law enforcement agencies combined. That's tremendous resources devoted to immigration enforcement. And that means that today, the agencies, the sub-agencies within Homeland Security that enforce immigration law, agencies like ICE, which has been much in the news, and the Customs and Border Patrol Agency, those agencies have been able in recent years to deport upwards of 400,000 non-citizens each year. That number dwarfs the entire prison population in the federal criminal justice system, just to give you a sense of the scope of it. So the second change of the course of the 20th century was really a state capacity building change, where we built a bureaucratic capacity to enforce immigration at high levels. The third change, the third change occurred when the legal reality of deportation, the bureaucratic reality of immigration enforcement apparatus collided with dramatically rising levels of unauthorized immigration in the final third of the 20th century. Now, why levels of unauthorized immigration rose during that period, the causes of that rise are really complicated and somewhat contested, but the consequences are crystal clear. The consequences was that it produced a world in which nearly 11 million non-citizens live in the country formally in violation of immigration law and therefore at all times formally subject to deportation. 11 million people, that means nearly half of all non-citizens living in the country are subject to deportation. That means we have an enormous shadow system of immigration that stands alongside our formal system. And in a world where nearly half of all non-citizens are formally subject to deportation, the complicated and complex immigration code that Congress has written down on the books over decades and decades becomes increasingly less relevant. And what matters more is not that code, but instead simply the executive branch's choices about when to enforce immigration law and against whom. That system, with the president sitting atop an enormous shadow immigration system and supervising the exercise of the enforcement power, that's what put the president at the center of our immigration policymaking process today. But it wasn't really so much a series of explicit statutory provisions where Congress gave away its power so much as it was these large scale structural changes to the system that took place over nearly a century. Now, I wanna be clear, while we think that's the central source of the president's power, it's not the only one, and there are other sources, which Christina, I think we'll talk about a bit. Um, and as Moose noted, Congress does and has on occasion explicitly given the president power. President Trump's ban on immigrants from a number of majority Muslim countries, for example, a policy announced in the earliest days of his presidency, that policy was grounded in an explicit delegation of emergency authority by Congress to the president to suspend immigration under conditions that were largely within the president's control. But even in the world of those kinds of express delegations by Congress, we think more attention needs to be paid, not just to those emergency powers, but to interstitial small authorities that Congress gave the president that turned out to be important vehicles for presidential policymaking in the immigration space. For example, back in 1952, Congress gave the executive branch the authority to let immigrants land who would otherwise be excludable. Congress had in mind maybe you know, the attorney general permitting an immigrant in Ellis Island to land for emergency medical treatment. 
But what presidents did with that power is they built our modern refugee system, admitting hundreds of thousands of people under this small interstitial statutory authority called the parole power. So those explicit delegations of power combined with the enormous kind of de facto delegation of power given to the president because he stands atop the shadow system, those are the 20th century developments that Christina and I think have put us in the place where we're at today. So I'll turn it over to Christina now so she can talk a little bit about what that reality means for us today on the ground and going forward for the future of immigration law. Thank you so much, Adam, and thank you to MOVE and to MPI for gathering us all together. We're incredibly grateful. I'm also really excited to hear from Elena and Sarah in just a moment. Uh, but I want to talk a little bit about the implications of this shadow system that Adam has described and to think through what it means for immigration policy today, especially in light of the Trump administration and the gathering concern that this administration has abused its power, uh, whatever its source. First and foremost, we think that the proper response, if there is a view that power has been abused, is not to assert strong claims against the presidency itself or to declare the presidency out of control in some general sense. The import of our historical account, as Adam has laid it out, is that presidents have long looked for ways to advance their agendas through the powers that exist in the system. Instead, it's important for us to understand when and why strong presidential power is constructive and needed, and then also to identify the laws and legal structures that can be exploited for abusive ends and work to reform those laws and legal structures. And ultimately, as we'll discuss, this is as much a political agenda as it is a legal one. So we start when we begin evaluating the implications of the shadow system in the book, and then when we talk about the ideas in it, with the shadow system as a given, uh, that the factors that have created it are ones that are extraordinarily difficult to dislodge, even though illegal immigration itself uh, has dropped dramatically, there's still, as Adam suggested, a large population of people without status in the United States. And in a system like the shadow system, we believe that we still need strong forms of presidential power and control to tame the system, to have a chance of taming the system, and to bring humanity to the enforcement system. But it's also always important to be thinking about how that control can be used responsibly. So we believe that it's vital for a president to articulate enforcement priorities and then to use the power that he or she has to supervise law enforcement agents to advance those priorities. Of course, from our point of view, with a president like Trump, we wind up with enforcement priorities that we abhor as a substantive and political matter. But we also think that leaving the choices about when to enforce the law and against whom to enforce the law, choices the executive branch cannot escape under the shadow system, in the hands of what is today a semi-militarized law enforcement culture, would be far worse over time. And policies like DACA, which we favor on the merits, uh, we also think are emblematic of the forms of supervision that high-level officials can exert over line agents that lay out rules to channel enforcement discretion uh, in order to advance high-level priorities and leaving key discretionary decisions with high-level officials who are politically accountable. And by making those choices transparent, making the officials who make them accountable for the choices they've made, make them subjects of debate. 
So there are different ways to manage the shadow system. And of course, whether a president does it in a way that conforms with our ultimate vision for immigration will depend a lot on who that particular president is. And so the choice of the president is a highly consequential one for the management of the shadow system. But the need to keep it under control and, and tame it and bring some humanity to it means that we should be wary of whether legal doctrines or other kinds of arguments that seek to cabin the president's power to control it. But the other important dimension of our discussion is that our ultimate aspiration is to bring the shadow system to an end uh, because of what we have understood by looking at its historical operation and by witnessing the way in which it operates in the lives of people today. So toward the end of the book, we turn our attention to why this system is something that we think is a matter of uh, politics and not just law uh, should be brought to an end. And it's primarily because it is a system that enables social control and domination by the government of immigrant populations. Even DACA, which was a way of providing stability to the dreamers, including through granting them work authorization, which enabled them to live productive lives, is a contingent status. The threat of deportation to anyone in the shadow system makes it difficult to plan and invest. Deportation itself, which is a regular feature of the system and one that all the resources that Ms. Adam described have made much more of a, a regular feature of the system, is enormously destabilizing to individuals and communities. And the shadow system itself abets someone like Donald Trump, who combines a law and order rhetoric, a restrictionist view of the polity with racial appeals to engage in policies that are intended to or to articulate enforcement priorities that are intended to instill fear. Even a well-intentioned administration has to preside over this mammoth system and the use and calibration of its enforcement tools are a part of any administration's legal obligations. And so even an administration that desires to reform immigration law root and branch will still have to manage a system, a bureaucracy with an enforcement logic at its core. So ultimately, uh, taming the enforcement logic in the system, which we think is morally required and good policy, both conclusions that could be debated, requires a legalization program. It's the only way to actually bring the shadow system to an end, and this of course is a political ambition, but our claims for legalization are linked to a proper understanding of immigration law and the way the law has actually operated in practice. But that's not enough. We actually think, given what we've learned about the role the president has played historically in shaping immigration policy, that shrinking the shadow system would give us an opportunity to reimagine the president's role. And there are aspects of the presidency and executive governance that should be brought to bear on immigration policy that aren't enough nearly to some extent or nearly to, to um, an extent that would make it a productive kind of involvement. So these tools include things like the capacity to engage in flexible policymaking, the ability to respond quickly to changing realities on the ground, and to develop policy dynamically in response to what's happening in the world, marshalling expertise that's devoted to the subject at hand. These are all characteristics of executive governance. And given these, uh, if we were able to tame the shadow system, we would advocate the delegation of some power to the president and the executive branch in, for example, setting quotas or in figuring out the dynamics of the labor market such that uh, employment-oriented visas could be 
calibrated to what's actually happening in the world. We also advocate creating a kind of parallel power to the suspension power that Adam described, which is giving the president greater powers to deal with crises, not just through exclusion and enforcement, deterrence, detention, arrest, but through tools that allow the admission or at least the entry of non-citizens and the management of crises in a humanitarian fashion. One that may in fact ultimately uh, bias their claim in favor of remaining in the country, but one that would make the system far more humane than the kinds of atrocities we've been witnessing on the border over the last couple of years. So these are our visions for reform and we hope that one of the lessons of the book will be that thinking through reform is about understanding the constructive potential of presidential power, but channeling it in the right direction with a legal structure that actually creates the right incentives and the right place for the virtues of executive governance that we claim for it. Before I hand it over to, to Sarah and Elena, I do want to say one last thing, because when we're thinking about the shadow system, and uh, if you're thinking to yourself, the kinds of reforms you're advocating, many of them have been uh, pressed for years in Congress, and it's enormously difficult to get Congress as our descriptive account suggests to change the law. So given the difficulty of changing the law and the need for constraint of the shadow system of the enforcement logic, as Lou suggested, there's a third branch of government that we should consider, and that is the courts. Uh, what role should and do the courts play in our story? So advocates uh, often complain that the president's power over immigration law today is a direct result of Supreme Court doctrines that were created in the 1890s to justify Chinese exclusion. And we argue at various points in the book that, that that's, that's actually quite overstated. And as Adam has already explained, the president's power is mostly the product of two 20th century developments that had little to do with the court. Given these roots of presidential power today, the courts are not especially central to our story, but they're also not irrelevant. Um, Judges have invalidated policies that violate bedrock principles of due process, and they've interpreted statutory provisions narrowly, rejecting the most extreme of the government's claims that its actions are unreviewable and not subject to constitutional scrutiny in order ultimately to protect immigrants. A lot of the Trump administration's policies, especially its border and asylum policies, its effort to dismantle that system remain mired in litigation, and there are questions of statutory interpretation that may be controlling and, and those policies may ultimately fall to judicial scrutiny. That said, uh, we also think that in recent years, the Supreme Court itself, as we suggested, has sent some ominous signals about its review, not just of executive power over immigration, but also of the legislative rules that govern uh, the processes of deportation and immigration more generally. So, in upholding President Trump's entry ban of the nationals from majority Muslim countries, the court concludes that it didn't matter if the president intended to discriminate on the basis of religion, if he also offered a facially legitimate defense of that policy, a defense uh, that could be uh, deemed rational by someone who doesn't peer behind uh, the facts that the president's relying on. In another astounding opinion from just this year, the court made it exceedingly difficult for asylum seekers apprehended at the border to bring their claims to a court, essentially giving uh, foundation to a provision in the Immigration Code that allows for expedited removal throughout the United States, a summary form of removal that many believe 
thwarts legitimate asylum claims. Importantly, it's not just the executive's authority to engage in that removal, but the congressional regime uh, that Trump is maximizing that the Supreme Court has upheld. So recent decisions by the high court like this lower some of the guardrails checking the president and Congress alike. Uh, these signals don't mean that principles like due process or the expectation that the government give good reasons for changing its policies, which is what has saved DACA up until now, won't continue to work to limit the excesses of presidential immigration law and the enforcement of the shadow system. But ultimately, we don't think these backstops are enough. They're part of a much bigger picture in which we hope everyone uh, will engage as we both move toward the election and to whatever the future may hold. Uh, thank you so much, Christina and Adam, for this uh, really insightful summary of what's promising to be a great book for all of us to read. So let me just turn quickly, uh, we're also getting a little tight on time, to Sarah first. So Sarah, you have obviously cataloged the Trump administration's actions. There are 500 plus. We don't have time to discuss all of them, obviously. But just quickly for us, summarize the main themes of the of the Trump administration's actions in the last three and a half years. I'd be happy to. And first, I, I just want to congratulate Christina and Adam on an amazing book, an amazing contribution. I think many of us in the immigration space have whiplash from the fast and fervent actions of this administration over the last four years. Um, and I think their book really helps contextualize what we all just experienced or have are experiencing and shows that it's less of a legal anomaly and more just smart people who took advantage of the available tools and those tools have been built up over decades. So as Moose said, I'll, I'll quickly highlight what President Trump has done with these authorities. First, just a broad overview of what has changed during the course of the administration so far. Um, and what strategies they employed to take advantage of those or really use those tools. So first, what have they done with these authorities? As Moose said, we recently released a report that catalogs more than 400 immigration-related changes that occurred during the course of the Trump administration. These changes significantly reduced unauthorized entries at the southern border, revitalized immigration in, in the interior enforcement, they significantly increase vetting of all types of immigration benefits for foreign nationals, both applying for benefits outside and inside of the United States, implemented bans that block nationals of 13 countries, in addition to travel bans that were implemented during the pandemic that continue to block foreign travel from 31 countries. They drastically reduced humanitarian admissions, including nearly eviscerating the refugee program. And their changes that were relevant to immigration, actually, some of them were beyond the immigration system, including changes to the census, the military, and social security. And nearly all of these efforts have really been supersized by the pandemic and the expanded authorities that an executive enjoys during an emergency like this. The administration implemented a ban that has effectively ended asylum at the southern border. The president issued a proclamation that ended certain types of immigration into the country, and then another proclamation that significantly reduced um, foreign temporary foreign workers coming into the country. So um, what 
what did the use of presidential immigration law look like during the administration? What strategies did they employ? Well, they used really every single available bureaucratic tool and at an extremely fast pace as well. Executive orders, proclamations, regulations, policy memos, employee manuals, programmatic changes, distribution of resources, and more were all used. And they were frequently layered. So we saw the administration use one tool and then a little bit later use a different tool to accomplish the same ends. For example, the attorney general, attorneys general issued many opinions throughout the course of the administration, and we've seen some of the changes implemented in those opinions appear later on in regulations, and they're able to then insulate some of their changes that they're, they're making by layering those changes. They've also utilized small, a really strong technical knowledge of the immigration system to make very small technical changes that have a big impact on the whole. For example, the administration changed one line in the employee manual that goes to consulate officers at consulates and embassies abroad. In, in this employee manual, where previously consulate officers were encouraged to grant visas for the full available time, for example, H-1B visas are typically granted for three years. This change now says that consulate officers, if there's information available that would indicate to them that the visa should be granted for less time, they should use their authority to do that, to grant it for less time. So there's many effects of this, but one of the effects is that foreign nationals on temporary visas will have to apply more often for visas. And when they do, each time they apply, they'll be subject to the increased vetting measures that this administration has put in place. So these small technical changes really add up to a big change. There's also been a real focus on messaging during this administration, especially related to interior enforcement. And on interior enforcement, they've actually run into a lot of problems. Um, it's been limited by the judicial system and by the cooperation of localities, which Elena will touch on, but it's also been limited by resources. The administration can only arrest and deport as many migrants as they have the resources to do. And during 2008, 18 and 2019, those resources were really depleted as they dealt with the crisis on the southern border to the extent that arrests and deportations actually decreased over that time. But while they weren't accomplishing what I think they initially came in to do on interior enforcement, they did accomplish uh, really projecting a very strong message on interior enforcement that all unauthorized immigrants are vulnerable to deportation and to arrest. They did this with a lot of strategies, but those include worksite enforcement. They quadrupled worksite enforcement investigations. And even though worksite enforcement is not a very efficient means at finding unauthorized immigrants or arresting them, it is a very efficient means at, at sending a very strong message. It's very, they're very visible operations and they tell unauthorized immigrants that they're not safe at their worksite. This administration has also put a really big emphasis on at-large arrests, so arrests of unauthorized immigrants out in the community, on the street, at a store, even in their homes, which again sends that very strong and very visible message, you are not safe no matter where you go. So during the course of this administration, we've seen real energy and enthusiasm for using this presidential immigration law so well identified by Christina and Adam for, among other things, shutting down illegal immigration, restricting legal immigration, and making life 
really uncomfortable for immigrants in the United States and doing so in smart ways and at an extremely fast pace that really means these efforts are likely to remain part of our system for many years to come, including after this administration leaves office. Thank you so much, Sarah, for doing it so quickly and efficiently. So for our last panelist, let me turn to Elena. So Elena, other than the three branches of our government and our federal structure, states are another part of the body politic. And I just couldn't help notice in, in the book that sidelining the states is a chapter in the book. That for a good part of our nation's history, states had a significant role in immigration. And I'm not necessarily asking you to talk about that history. But it's quite clear that at least in this chapter, states have decided to become some of the major leaders contesting the exercise of executive action by the president. And the attorney general are in the forefront of that. Your office is particularly important to that fight. So I just thought you could tell us first both about how did the attorneys general, which were sort of not that active in immigration debate in the past, come to become the sort of on the front lines of this? And then how would you respond to the points that Christina's and Adam's book raised about enormous uh, power and authority that the president has? How do you challenge? And the president decides to do in the context of that exercise of power. Thanks so much, Ruth. And I just also want to echo the thanks that my fellow panelists have given to MPI and to the other folks on this panel. As an advocate, it is really refreshing to be able to have the opportunity to take a little bit of a step back to think about the broader structures in which we are litigating and challenging these actions. Um, and I think this book is a really important part of that conversation. So to take that first question with respect to sort of how states have gotten to the forefront of this conversation, I think there's sort of two answers to that. I think that the first is that states are at the forefront of this conversation because the, these actions by the federal government are harming our jurisdictions directly and seriously. And we can see that in a whole host of examples that my office has been litigating. So take the public charge rule, for example. This is this administration's effort to essentially impose a wealth test on immigrants who are seeking to change their status. And one thing that it does is it penalizes immigrants who take advantage of certain subsidized benefits like uh, Medicaid and certain health care benefits. And what that does, and what courts have agreed with my office that it does, is it effectively deters immigrants, particularly in this time of COVID-19, from seeking medical care and treatment of this disease. And in so doing, undermines states' efforts to mitigate the spread of disease. I think we can see this in the census citizenship question litigation, where the federal government decided that we should put a citizenship question on the census that the government acknowledged would deter immigrants from responding to the At stake were billions of dollars in federal funding, the allocation of political power, and the integrity of the data systems that government organizations like our state use to make decisions in terms of zoning schools, transportation infrastructures, other things. Take DACA. The administration's policy and desire to abruptly end this program that has been by so many measures a resounding success would harm our universities where these students go, would harm our employers in our jurisdiction, 
would harm our state's commitment to diversity and fairness under the law. And so the sort of first answer as to why states have been at the forefront here, I think is really because these actions harm not just the immigrants in our jurisdictions, but they harm our jurisdictions directly. But I think the second part of this answer is that the states are at the forefront of these conversations and these fights because the administration has brought us here. And I think that if you look at some of the important policies that this administration has brought, many of them are really designed to coerce state institutions and states who have favorable policies towards immigrants who are sanctuary jurisdictions to try to get those states to effectuate federal immigration policy. So we can look at various uh, litigation around federal grant programs where they attempt, where the federal government has attempted to penalize um, state jurisdictions that won't cooperate with federal immigration officials by denying federal funds. We can look at ICE and courts where this administration has dramatically ramped up using state courthouses and state institutions to effectuate their arrests. We can look at the global entry case where the federal government decided that no New Yorkers would be permitted to participate in various trusted traveler programs because, among other reasons, New York operates as a sanctuary jurisdiction. And so I think when we're thinking about why states are at the forefront, this notion that states are in fact being conscripted into federal immigration efforts and are resisting those efforts is really an important part of the story. With respect to your second question, Ruth, and I'll be brief because I know we're running out of time here. I think the role of courts is incredibly important now. As Christina pointed out, while there is discretion here, it is not unlimited discretion. And we have seen DOJ in virtually all of our cases argue that this discretion is unlimited, argue that their policies are not reviewable. And we have seen court after court, including the Supreme Court, deny that unlimited discretion. Now, at a minimum, these agencies and these federal immigration agencies are held to a minimum requirements of reasoned decision making, that they need to consider important parts of the problem, they need to look at the evidence, that they need to make a decision that is rational and give their real reason for taking action. And what we have seen repeatedly over the course of the last several years is that many of these decisions do not even meet these basic tests of rationality. So in the census citizenship question, you had the administration saying that they were taking this action because they wanted to promote the minority voter protection provisions of the Voting Rights Act. And the Supreme Court in that case even said that this is not the real reason and that therefore this decision could not stand. You have the public charge decision where the administration took this test that has traditionally been used to bar less than 1% of immigrants from adjusting their status to become permanent residents and adopted a test that would effectively sweep in a third of the country if you applied it to all residents of our country. Courts have held that that decision is so far outside the scope of discretion, so far outside the scope of the statutory terms that it cannot hold. And so I think what you will see and what we have seen are courts being a backstop to really at least in some cases, limit the really outlandish decisions that we have seen from, as Christina says, the sort of maximalist interpretations from this administration. And I'll stop there because I know we're so short on time. Uh, thank, <laughs> thank you so much, Elena. And, um, you know, we, we have about um, 
you know, or 12, 13 minutes left. So let me just, uh, we have a couple of some questions from uh, the uh, participants that have come. I'll do justice to them. But let me ask you an opening question to Adam and Christina, which will also, I guess, help you answer the one of the questions I asked early on with how do you get to this project? Is that nothing in immigration is non controversial these days? So even the timing of a book becomes controversial. That here we are in the middle of a Trump administration, which is asserted as authority to the hill. So sort of coming to, coming out with a book may at the time when a lot of people are sort of openly skeptical about the views and it's not uh, being victimized by this. Um, how do you tell your audience about the timing? Uh, and also that may help explain how do you get to starting the project? So either of you or both of you. I'll start. Um, so Adam and I have actually been working on this project for more than a decade. I think 12 years now we've been uh, thinking about the president's role in immigration law back at the tail end of the Bush administration. Uh, and it's obviously developed substantially since then because there is an incredible amount of water under the bridge between 2008 and 2020. And we actually uh, had the intention of finishing this book, I would say two or three years ago, uh, but we did not anticipate Donald Trump, um, like most people in the country. And so we felt like it was imperative to take a step back and really witness uh, what he would do and how people would react and whether the pushback would come from Congress, from social movements, from the courts, and what kind of political momentum he would build uh, using the tools that we had identified uh, long before that were at the president's disposal. And, and I think as, as Sarah's presentation suggests and as her work suggests, uh, this administration has accomplished far more than we ever could have imagined when we began. And so the timing is really a product of wanting to make sense of the whiplash that, that Sarah described as well, and to be able to put it into a larger historical context, which requires you to sit for a while with what's going on. Uh, but it's also an opportune moment to think about how consequential the presidency is for lots of issues that we care about, uh, not least of which is immigration law and policy, because we're about to make a choice and there will be a future of policymaking that emanates from that choice that we hope our work can help shape in some way. Uh, hearing not, so let me just ask a, a couple of questions that have come up. Uh, one sort of, you know, what sort of does in, in some way the question to, to to a few authors is that what is the, uh, in this, uh, uh, you know, sort of you know, this uh, system of uh, uh, that, that, you know, in this system where so many people are uh, in the shadows. Uh, what is the shadow system that you talk about referring to? And I guess you mean by talking about the unauthorized. Other than the legalization, is there any other recommendation that you have to deal with that, with that shadow system and people who, who are in need of something like legalization? 
Christina, you want to handle that? Adam, you want to handle that? I think Adam was talking, but he's muted. I, I was speaking <laughs> and was mysteriously oh. muted by technology, but I'm back. So that's when, not a shadow system at work. Shadow <laughs> system at work. Um, you know, I think our view is it, this is a really important and difficult question um, because, you know, when we think about the president's power of immigration policy, we got to think about the distinction between authority to act and on the one hand, and then constraints on the exercise of discretion on the other. And I think Elena did a great job, I mean, in emphasizing that distinction in her remarks. And I think it's an important one uh, for any answer you might give to this question. Because the bottom line reality is that until the shadow system is shrunk, the scope of authority wielded by the presidency over the enforcement system is going to remain large. There's not another you know, magic solution that can take a system where half the legal subjects of that system are in violation of law and somehow make the president's enforcement power over them disappear. But even if the scope of authority remains large, unless or until we reach a point politically where there's a large-scale legalization program that's adopted, it's still true, as Elena emphasized, that there are ways in which limits can be imposed on the reasons why discretion is exercised. Um, and those limits, can, they can come from courts, although, as we note in the book, it turns out that with respect to you know, the choice prosecutors make to charge or not to charge, to pursue enforcement or not, that's a space where courts, not just in immigration law, but across the board in American history, have been very reluctant to impose constraints on discretionary decision making. And so, you know, it, it's possible we could be hopeful that such, such constraints might emerge, but if they emerged here, they'd be emerging here despite a long history of judicial um, restraint with respect to enforcing discretion in lots of places. That means constraints on the exercise of discretion are more likely to come, as Elaine emphasized, from um, traditional doctrines of administrative law, or maybe from Congress, then they're, then they're going to come from courts exercising um, real constraints on the way that enforcement power, the discretion uh, to exercise enforcement is usually um, wielded by the president. Great. So both Sarah and Elena, do you want to add something because this could be it's essential to what, how you thought about these issues also? So I think I think that's absolutely right. And I think that one thing that we have seen as this administration has gone on is that they have become more sophisticated at their administrative decision making, which makes it harder for folks in my shoes who are litigating these decisions to challenge them. I think if you look at decisions that were made early on in this administration and some of the sort of administrative records that were produced, some of the rationales that were given. Courts have, de have, have reversed those decisions because the agency just wasn't doing a good enough job coming up with a rationale that could pass the, the sort of last test. And I think now this administration, for uh, I think a host of reasons, is becoming more sophisticated at how to work this process. And in so doing, really is cutting off or making much harder these kinds of procedural and administrative law challenges 
in a way that I think makes potentially, you know, further litigation as they get more and more experience, more and more difficult. Great. Sarah, you want to add to that or? Yeah, I, I don't have anything to add except to say that, that I agree that, that over time we've seen that having the courts as a backstop for for an administration that's so willing to use every tool available on immigration, it's, it's insufficient that the, the courts can only do so much. I also think that the role of uh, popular protest and opposition has uh, been significant in shaping presidential immigration law. And I see litigation in some ways as part of that, even if cases are lost, the act of litigation, the arguments that get made are also ways of building for different forms of opposition to what its administration has done. So one of the reasons DACA came into being was because of the advocacy of the dreamers. Uh, and there might have been a lot of reasons why the administration would have eventually converged on a program like DACA, but that insistence by advocates that something be done about the deportation system forced an initially reluctant administration uh, to think creatively. And, and I think also uh, we can point to discrete examples during the last four years of popular opposition having an effect. It doesn't always work out as well as uh, those people might want at the end of the day, but there are policies that have been pulled back. Um, for example, when ICE announced that uh, university students from abroad uh, could not enroll or retain their visas if they weren't studying in person in the middle of the pandemic when the vast majority of universities were online and universities were up in arms about that, they changed their policy. So we shouldn't be overly optimistic about that, but it is a channel that has helped to shape the exercise of this enforcement discretion in the absence of Congress actually changing the underlying rules, which is what we really need. Great. Let me get one more question because I think this follows up on this. So the, the commentators, the executive authority has grown because Congress has been in law. So in a new administration, would Congress be able to make changes to limit executive action or not? So why don't the authors take that and less than one minute? I'll say that Congress has enormous power to make changes, and there are a lot of reforms that we would advocate to shrink the system beyond legalization, like reintroducing the statutes of limitations that Adam talked about, uh, providing vehicles for kind of ongoing legalizations that don't depend on having a huge legislative debate every 30 years, what can be done on by the executive on a rolling basis. Um, there are also a lot of things we don't think Congress should do. We don't think Congress should prohibit DACA, for example, or uh, prohibit enforcement actions of that sort. But these are all uh, things that are within its power, which is considerable. It's just a question of whether it chooses to exercise it and uh, who is actually exercising it to, to what end. Uh, so maybe we have a quick, uh, another question, which uh, Adam, you may choose to answer that. Uh, in in the pre in the does the in the parallel power structure the president practices humanitarian how do we ensure that the president can practice humanitarian practices for on immigration? So to give the shortest answer, I really think that the same answer applies here. Um, mm -hmm. Christina just gave for the exercise of the enforcement power, which is that um, once we see the the parallel role that the president plays in 
creating immigration policy, we also have to see the important role that the central role that politics and social movements are going to play in policing that power. So if the, if the questioner is worried that, you know, a, an executive branch will mask their, you know, a, a terrible immigration policies under a thin veil of seemingly, you know, kind humanitarian policies, that's a problem not just for, you know, presidential immigration policy making, but for congressional as well. And the solution in both cases, unfortunately, is is doing the hard work of organizing political movements and social movements around resistance to those policies and making clear the real consequences of these policies on the ground. Uh, so we can go for maybe a minute or two more. Um, I think one of the questions I frankly have myself uh, struggled with is that you make this powerful point that one of the ways of reducing the, sort of the impact of this loss of the authority is to sort of reduce this shadow population. That's providing more incentive. I think that is true with respect to people inside the country. How do you think about dealing with this power with respect to people who are trying to enter the country? Uh, because we could see a specter of caravans of people coming after the new administration. Uh, because that's not going to be helped by shrinking the present population in the So if you don't mind reflecting on that for a second. So I'll identify a few uh, specific policy options. Uh, it's clear that uh, it's not enough to solve the problem we already have. You also have to have tools that allow you to respond to problems that we cannot foresee or that we might predict in some general sense but don't know how they'll emerge in their details. And so things like uh, the parallel to the suspension power that Adam and I have talked about, where presidents or executive officials have the power to admit people in times of crisis, or a, a system that actually updates quota numbers and visa numbers in a dynamic fashion, maybe through the incorporation of executive expertise, so that you don't have a system that's stuck in 1990, which is a, a different world than exists today, so that you don't, uh, you, you don't end up producing as much illegal immigration. So the way that you prevent illegal immigration or the emergence of a new shadow system uh, will depend a lot on what the future demographic uh, determinants of that are. But that's precisely why you need a system of government that can anticipate and respond to facts on the ground. And that's why we think something like the presidency and the concept of executive governance are suited to preventing this kind of a system from reemerging uh, insofar as it's difficult for Congress to itself adapt as time goes on. Uh, I think we are getting close to where we should conclude. We have gone over it a little. I just want to thank um, uh, Christina and Adam for this uh, extraordinary book, which I think will provide a huge uh, sort of roadmap for people to understand something they have witnessed but haven't gotten sufficient way of, of understanding it. Uh, so we hope the book does extremely well. Congratulations uh, on the book. Uh, to uh, Elena and Sarah Sachs. Thank you so much for providing uh, this insightful responses to, to the book and, and sort of providing the right sort of context for what's happening in the Trump administration. We're really sorry for all the participants that we could get all the, all the questions. Uh, we got many of them. 
if any of you felt they're not answered, please feel to send them on to us and we'll get them on to the call office and they'll provide you answers by email. Uh, for any questions the reporters may have who are on the call, please get in touch with Michelle Middlestadt, our communications director at 202-266-1910. For any questions, uh, please email us to eventsatmigrationpolicy.org. An audio recording of today's event will be available at migrationpolicy.org slash events. Uh, and if you, you have it on our, on our slide here, sort of the reference to Christina's and Adam's book, uh, please do take it seriously and buy it as quickly as you can. Uh, so that you will have all your questions on executive policy answered and on MPI's uh, work on executive action, including Sarah and Jessica's uh, recent piece on cataloging the, the executive actions in the Trump administration, please go to MPI website. And let me end this again by congratulating you, Christina and Adam. Uh, we will all see you at the next uh, MPI event and certainly at the 17th uh, Annual Law and Policy Conference, which will be held on September 21st and 22nd. So with that, I'm Muzaffar Chishti. I'm Senior Fellow of the Migration Policy Institute and Director of MPI's office at New York University School of Law. Thank you all for joining us from greatest parts of the country and the world. And see you at the next MPI event. Thank you.